This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRR-FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Peter Volleben. Peter is a German forester, conservationist and best-selling author. He returned to the show to discuss his latest book, The Power of Trees, How Ancient Forests Can Save Us If We Let Them. Peter and I delve into a wide range of themes from his book as he reveals how trees can create their own climate and weather systems. He also tells us about the close relationship between fungi, bacteria and trees, the fascinating ways that trees communicate with birds and insects, the surprising ways that trees adapt during situations of unexpected drought, and how ancient trees or old-growth trees will play a vital and major role in combating climate change. We cover all these topics and much more. The Power of Trees is out through Black Ink in Australia. And you are tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3RRR-FM in Melbourne. My name is Amy Mullins and it is my true delight and pleasure to welcome back onto the program Peter Volleben. Peter is from Germany. He has been on this show before. I last spoke with him in December 2016 when his very first book came out called The Hidden Life of Trees. It soon became a bestseller and is it any wonder why? Peter is joining me now from Germany and we're going to be discussing his latest book which has just come out. It's called The Power of Trees, How Ancient Forests Can Save Us If We Let Them. To give you an idea of Peter's background, he spent over 20 years working for the Forestry Commission as a forester before leaving to put his ideas of ecology into practice. He is currently running an environmentally friendly woodland in Germany where he is working towards the return of primeval forests. He also runs a forest academy which has conservation projects working towards that end. Peter has written other books, not only The Hidden Life of Trees, but also The Heartbeat of Trees, The Inner Life of Animals, a children's book, Peter and the Tree Children. There's also an excellent documentary called The Hidden Life of Trees. And of course, today, as I said, we're speaking about the power of trees. I welcome back onto the program now, Peter Volleben. Thank you so much, Peter, for taking the time to speak with us again. Thank you for the invitation, Amy. I'm so excited about this conversation and I've been counting down the days and I've got so many questions for you, so I'll do my best to get them to you. But I did want to give you an idea of just how inspired you've made our listeners on this show. Basically, when we had this conversation and you were my first ever interview for this program way back in 2016. (laughs) Yeah, so it was a big deal. It feels really special to speak with you again. But it set me off on this big journey when you told me about the wood wide web. This set me off on this journey to find out more about fungi, about trees, and also especially the old growth trees here in Australia, things like the mountain ash forests, the tallest flowering trees in the world. So this has really set us off, not just me, but our listeners here on a really exciting path. And it means that we come to this conversation very enthusiastic about what you're going to tell us today. I wanted to start way back at the start, just to set the scene for those listening, to your first book, The Hidden Life of Trees. This was where we heard about things like the mother tree, which is suckling its children through the ground, through the root systems, through the mycelial networks, the wood wide web. 
sending out sugar solution to its children to look after them. And it just sparked my imagination and people's imaginations around the world to think of trees in a way that's closer to us, that is a way that we can relate to trees, that it means that they're not a distant thing from us. So I wanted to, first of all, speak with you about the primeval forest that you talk about, that you know so much about, and then we'll talk about plantation forests and the differences between them. But could you tell us about how primeval forests I guess, evolve and how these young little baby trees grow up being looked after by their mother trees and how they're forced in a very strict way to grow in such a slow way compared to the way that plantation forests are today. Yeah, um, uh, primeval forest, perhaps first, um, a forest uh, is not just about trees, it's uh, also about bacteria, fungi, um, insects, and they all together form a forest and work together to make a forest better. And um, in this sense, trees are even egoistic because they, they take their ecosystem and make it function in a way which fits better for them. But Opposite to us, they make the the ecosystem with their egoism better uh, than it was before. So that means, for example, perhaps you came later on on this abilities that trees are able to cool um, the local atmosphere. They can create rain clouds all together as a big social system, as as a big organism or as a big family. And when we come back to the little trees, uh, yesterday, for example, I... I have a little Insta account and they, they make a, a photo of protected beach forest here in the backyard of, of our old forester house. And this, this little beach seedling, it's, it's perhaps around about 10 centimeters in height, is 14 years old. So it's a very slow youth grow and um, that causes a very, very high possible age. So the little tree has to start very slowly could grow very fast but in the in the shadow of the mother tree it's protected it it starts very very slow and um, there's always a risk when you grow in the shadow that you die because if uh, if a plant material uh, gets gets not enough light it, it will die so for that reason there's a connection between the mother tree and the seedling, and um, just to say that, the, the term mother tree is a very old German scientific uh, term, <laughs> because some people think, ah, that's a little bit esoteric to, to call it mother tree. You know, it's used for centuries in Germany, because foresters uh, always knew that there is a, a, some way of care. And nowadays, we know it uh, more exactly. It's to create shadow, it's uh, for caring uh, for the for the own seedlings, the own seedlings. Um, the, the mother tree is able to detect with the root tips whether it is an oak or a beech tree uh, near it. If the seedlings are the the own seedlings or seedlings from different trees, so uh, you can judge it by radioactive marked sugar molecules where the sugar from the mother tree goes to. And when scientists found out that. The, the sugar goes mostly to the own seedlings. So there is a relationship. And sometimes we think, hmm, trees are doing the same things that we do. No, it's the other way around. We are a very young species on this, <laughs> species on this planet. <laughs> and uh, that our social principles of nature, because cooperation uh, always works better than competition. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. 
it reminds me also of that clarification you gave me in, in that early chat in 2016 that it's so important for these trees, but any trees really, to grow from seed as opposed to growing up in a nursery, for example, where you're ruining and, and cutting off the root systems. Could you tell us about that, just how critical it is to start from a seed and the patience that's required to facilitate a tree's full life? When it comes to the roots, uh, that's the roots are some somewhat like the brain of the tree, and even that is not a metaphor. In the nearby University of Bonn, for example, there are scientists researching the root tips, and in the root tips, there are brain-like structures. There are brain-like processes going on, sometimes with similar neurotransmitters, electrical, chemical processes. There, a tree makes its decisions, and when it comes to a tree nursery in Germany. A tree nursery is called tree school, which is a little bit crazy because you prune brain-like structures in school. That that's not a very good school. And uh, yeah, but but the sad uh, thing is that trees from tree nurseries won't develop complete root system anymore. For example, if you cut the root tips, the question is why do they cut them? There's a simple answer, because even a very little tree has a very big root system, and you can't bring it out of the soil and uh, transport it, plant it again, wheresoever. That's a lot of costs and would be very, very complicated. So the root system is cut into shape so that it remains compact, and so you can handle it much easier, and so this little tree is much cheaper. It's all about the costs, of course. And that means that the tree can't root deep anymore. Never. We don't know why it is like this, but the roots are not orientating uh, themselves down. So that means that they can't reach uh, deeper soil layers where more water is stored. So those trees will die in a drought much earlier. So we have this plantation system all over the world, in Australia, in New Zealand, in Germany, in India, in British Columbia, wheresoever. It's uh, more or less the same system. And that means that those plantation forests are very weak. And when we see damages in such forests, we think, ah, that's climate change. No, that's the root damage from which the trees never recovered. Yeah, it's something that we should absolutely be keeping in mind when we're thinking about our own gardens as well. Yeah. I know that you say, you know, you've just mentioned there it's a brain-like structure and obviously it has a function of a brain in a way. You've written in the past that trees have a memory, that we know that trees can count, and you gave an example of apple trees that would bring on new leaves after a certain number of warm days to avoid a late heavy frost. But you also tell us that trees can also pass down knowledge. So it's not just through genetics, which would take a very long time, as you say in this book, but they pass knowledge down through other ways. Could you tell us about that? Yeah, um, it's a little bit about genetics, but uh, about epigenetical effects means that there are little markers on the genes. And with this, it's possible to pass down knowledge from one generation to another, um, even on us. It was first detected in the Netherlands after the Second World War that uh, children from mothers who hadn't enough to eat during the war behaved different concerning food. And nowadays we know from trees, there are several studies made that trees can pass down knowledge, for example, about water management from one generation to the next through epigenetical effects. That means, in easier words, that the young trees have the same knowledge than the old trees 
And therefore, it's very important to have as much old trees as we can have because they are like libraries. They have so much knowledge to pass down and the seedlings from these old trees, who, uh, which has experienced many, many different uh, dangers and they are much more resilient. So, for example, there were experiments made that they brought spruce trees from Austria to Norway and there they didn't grow very well, but the next generation was adapted to Norwegian climate because they have learned from their mother trees how to behave. I love that. Well, a lot of those themes come up through this new book, The Power of Trees, How Ancient Forests Can Save Us If We Let Them. And I do want to, for our Australian audience, introduce some of the types of trees, and you've mentioned them a little bit already, but on your website, on the Forest Academy website, it says that if it was by nature or by natural design, Germany would be over 90% covered by forest, the majority of which would be beech trees or beech oak mixed forests. And these beech forests are very much not being allowed to grow old anymore, as we read in your book. So beech trees that are the age of over 180 today only account for 0.16% of the land area. It does sound a lot similar to Australia in the case of old growth trees here. But could you introduce us to the different types of trees that would be in a primeval forest, the native trees, versus what has now been introduced due to plantations and plantation forestry in Germany and the types of challenges that that has brought? Yeah, that's. Uh, I think uh, Germany is a good, good example because German forestry was exported by the British uh, all over the world. And so you may suffer from the same mistakes we, we made here. In Germany, uh, as you said, it's mainly uh, was beach, uh, mainly beach forests, which covered Germany. That means dozens of tree species. It's it's most, the highest percentage is beech tree, then uh, oaks, uh, ash trees, uh, we have maple, we have, for example, white fir, lots of different tree species. And nowadays, the tree species with the highest percentage is spruce, which was never native to most parts of Germany. The second highest percentage is pine, which also was never native to most parts of Germany. So that are plantations with non-native conifers, they cause a lot of problems. For example, many people think, okay, but that are trees, so that should be a forest. But if you imagine, um, we are, you and me, we are uh, eating mostly grass, right? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Many people say, oh, no, perhaps smoking, but not eating. Uh, <laughs> no, it's about corn, it's about wheat, it's about rice, it's about oat, that are all grass species. And um, if you say, would say, okay, but let's change to grass on meadows, then we would all starve to death because we were not able to, to eat uh, meadow grass. And that's exactly what happens in, in the forest out there when you turn it into, in a, into a plantation of non-native trees. All those soil life, like bacteria, fungi, insects, they need sugar from the roots of beech trees, of oaks, and so on. They are not able to use spruce or pine substance. So that means uh, that the the forest is dying if you change to non-native tree species. And lay people would say, but yeah, it's still a forest because uh, there, there are growing trees. But in reality, plantations are green deserts. 
It reminds me of an interview you recently did. I was listening to it. You just mentioned their white fur and even the fact that when white fur from Southern Europe was taken across to the Black Forest and apparently was genetically identical but grew in different weather conditions, you were recounting a really kind of funny story, I guess, in the sense that the fungi just decided to reject the white fur. Can you tell us why? Yeah, um, trees are able to learn. Trees are able to adapt uh, very fast. You can can even say from one week to another. We, we uh, in former times we thought that trees are only uh, would only to be able to adapt to climate change, for example, through genetical mutation. But uh, nowadays we know no, they are able to learn very very fast and uh, to change their behavior. And then it comes back to your idea then that forest scientists, for example, said, okay, it's perhaps not a good idea to, to uh, take non-native tree species better adapted to a hotter and drier climate. So we take the same tree species from southern more uh, population. In, in your case, it would mean northern more population <laughs> because here it's in, in uh, uh, southern Europe it's it's warmer it's drier so I said okay it would be a good idea to to, uh, to bring white fur from let's say Greece to the black forest in Germany because this uh, southern Europe white fur should be well adapted to a hotter drier climate okay so they just started to let them grow in the black forest and that didn't work very well and then they made genetical research Molecular genetical research, it's very dry and perhaps a little boring science, but the results are a little bit crazy because they found out the white fur from southern Europe don't grow in the black forest very well because the the fungi don't accept it. And we say, but it's 100% genetical white fur, so it should grow in the black forest. There is no difference, and the, the fungi says... No, it's a big difference. It's not a black forest white fur. And for me, it's a different tree species. So we, we see that we judge nature in human terms. And even to say this is a species and it's 100% identical. And the fungi says, no, it's not a white fur. I don't want to cooperate. And so I love the thought that the <laughs> fungi has always right. Yeah, <laughs> I love that too. They're very discerning, almost like tasting fine wine. They can tell the differences yeah. and the subtleties. Yeah. There was a, a similar, like a similar anecdote or story based on research, which also showed the way that trees are adapting. And these ash trees as another native tree example. And obviously, throughout the book, there's a lot going through it, which suggests that foresters, in particular, will see a tree that might be unhealthy. And they'll just assume it's dying and quickly we've got to chop it down and remove it, plant something new in its place. Whereas you say often they can recover quite miraculously, even when they look like they're going to die. And there are many different reasons for their adaptation or or recovery. One example you gave was about the Japanese fungi species. Could you explain how bacteria could play a role? Yeah. That's yeah, a very good example how we just look at trees and think they have to have a solution or otherwise we will replace them. It's about an ecosystem. A tree is like a planet. We uh, are also planets with many, many bacteria and, and fungi species and even yeah, those mites living in our face. Very, very funny things to tell. And the tree is also like a planet. And uh, bacteria and fungi they need tree sugar, and I 
I calculated it that, that a, a big old tree is pumping through a vegetation period around about 100 kilogram pure sugar in the underground to support its fellows. And to come back to this uh, disease, it's said, nobody knows it for 100% sure, but to be imported for this fungi species to Europe, to the Northern Hemisphere in general, it's, it's a problem all over the Northern Hemisphere that this fungi, they kill ash trees. But a certain percentage survive these attacks and uh, nobody knew why. And foresters try to breed resistant ash type, which would have been uh, a catastrophe because if you have uh, breeded uh, ash and they will mix with uh, native ash, and then the native ash will die out, will be extinct. So that means, luckily, it didn't work. The breed also died, and in the last summer, um, researchers found out that the surviving ash trees, they survive because of one single bacteria species, which changed its chemistry and is now fighting against the fungi. And so I love the thought that this bacteria are defending its home tree which is their planet. And they have a sense that there's something going wrong and that they have to react. So it's not just the tree which adapts, but the whole tree system uh, containing thousands of different species. And we know just a very little bit about forest. For example, a Norwegian uh, scientist found out that in two spoonful of forest soil, there are around about 40,000 different bacteria species. Not just not 40,000 bacteria, but 40,000 bacteria species. And we don't know what they are doing. They are all interacting and reacting and adapting. So that makes a forest resilient. And if we are, again, just planting trees without this ecosystem, it's no wonder that it's not working any longer on many places. It's so, so amazing to imagine what's going on. And that it's just that one bacteria. It seems so lucky that that one bacteria was there, but I'm sure it's not just luck. Peter, you mentioned at the start of the interview, you were talking about the ways that trees can cool the atmosphere and that they create their own weather systems and rain clouds, essentially. And that has a very key link back to their leaves. We often don't really realize just what they can do. And one of the most interesting parts of that chapter for me was how trees can draw water from the ocean inland. It was kind of mind-blowing to think of that and visualize it. Could you tell us a little bit about how trees create their own weather system and their own rain clouds? Yeah, um, and which is even more surprising is that Alexander von Humboldt, the German scientist who traveled the world and was the rock star of his time in science, well regarded. And nowadays we discover all his findings by satellite data. And yeah, what he found out and what is now proven very detailed is that trees are able to form their own local climate. And uh, that makes sense. For example, that every plant knows since 500 million years that where it grows, it has to stay. And if conditions are changing, we can move away as humans, but uh, plants have to stay. And they had 500 million years time to create strategies to help themselves and one strategy on trees. And therefore, it's very important that trees form big, big forests, that they help each other to, to stay healthy, that this 
big ecosystem is working. And what they are doing all together is, for example, they are evaporating water through the leaves. And that means that the local atmosphere cools down around about to 10 to 15 degrees Celsius in average in summer times. And during the summer, it's 10 to 15 degrees colder in a forest because trees don't love it too hot. And this water is not used water in this sense. It's just above the trees. And there it creates new clouds. And new clouds, you need little molecules or, or you need bacteria. And that means that, for example, a big tree releases per second round about 200,000 bacteria in the atmosphere. And they are rising up together with the, with the water molecules. And then they create more ice crystals, which means more raindrops. So the, the water falls back into the forest. So forest forms water cycles and they create low depression areas. And that is what you talked about. That means that they bring in air from the ocean into the forest with even more water, very, very moist air into the forest against the local wind systems which should sometimes go the other way, from the forest to the ocean. So they change the direction of winds into the forest, bringing more water into the forest, forming water cycles and creating their own weather. That means colder weather, that means more rainfalls. And scientists or even lay people have thought that rainforests grow where, where it rains a lot, but it's the other way around, where rainforests grow there it rains a lot because the rain in the rainforest is created to a high percentage by the trees itself. Yeah, it's quite amazing that they're going against those forces and creating their own. Yeah. I do really understand that because when I went to the mountain ash forests, it was much cooler and more humid, but in a wetter kind of atmosphere. And there were a lot of mosses growing and it was very different and it smelt different too. Yeah. There was a lot of different things about the atmosphere when I was there. Peter, when we also look at the part of your book which looks at drought and drought being such a big issue now due to climate change and changes in the weather, it already was an issue, of course, and different droughts can happen for different reasons. But it was fascinating to read about how you describe intricately the types of things and strategies that trees have to try and deal with an unexpected drought and also when the weather isn't behaving in the way that they expect it to at different parts in the season or parts in the year. And I certainly saw that in my own backyard. And when I was reading your book, I thought, oh my gosh, maybe this is what happened to me in summer. Because one of our trees, our silver birches, got really upset in summer and it was suddenly dropping all of its leaves and it looked like it was autumn and all the leaves had gone yellow. And I was wondering if I was in the wrong season because nearly all the leaves had already gone to the ground. And I thought, oh my gosh, I'm really worried about our tree. So I tried to give it more water really slowly, but I think I was it was pretty futile now that I've read your book that it probably wasn't going to make much of a difference. And I think it was the other two silver birches next to it probably helping it out because it's still alive now. Could you tell us about these little strategies, these types of things that are happening within a tree and the adaptations it's making to try and deal with unexpected drought conditions? 
Yeah, it's lovely that you described the tree in your garden because I want to encourage everyone who listens now to watch trees for a longer time, how they behave, because they are so slow, but they can also make funny things or sometimes uh, sad things. For example, uh, what, what I have watched is the, and described in the book, the horse chestnut, which made exactly the same. In the third year of heavy drought, we had in, in 18, 19 and 20 uh, heavy droughts and 22, of course, too. But in the third year in, in a row, this horse chestnut dropped its leaf in August. It's mid of summer in, in Germany. And what strategies do trees have? They can reduce water consumption. They can close those little, uh, yeah, it's, it's looked like a mouth on the backside of the leaves. Thousands of little, little mouths. They can close them, but there's always a little water evaporating through the leaves. And the last consequence is to drop the leaves beginning from the top of the trees going more and more down and if if there's still lack of water then of course the tree will drop all leaves off and that causes problems because the leaves are there to produce sugar the sugar the tree needs for the roots for its brain and for the winter time for example like a bear which feeds on on salmon and to have a thick fat layer under the skin so trees have a have a lot of sugar stored for winter time and if you drop the leaves off too early you have not enough sugar for those times so you could see this horse chestnut panics because all other horse chestnuts kept their leaves and some weeks later we had heavy rainfalls they could recover but this lonely horse chestnut which has dropped all the leaves off didn't have an advantage from the rainfalls because without leaves it couldn't commence with the sugar production so we saw this horse chestnut bring new leaves in autumn when all other horse chestnuts go to winter sleep of course this lonely horse chestnut started again to produce sugar which is of high risk because we have then frost and then the leaves will be destroyed so it was a very risky strategy but without that perhaps this horse chestnut would have died and in the next heavy drought in 2022 this horse chestnut has learned its lesson and kept all the leaves during the drought on the branches so that was lovely to to watch and now it looks healthy and okay so it learned its lesson it made a mistake you could watch made it uh, the mistake and now we see it behaves well and the other thing is just to have two examples of tree strategies we have 1000 year old oaks in germany a group very old group of oaks And uh, this, uh, we have different oak types in Germany. This oaks are belonging to an oak type, which used to have a lot of water and which lives near rivers. And in the two years of the three heavy dry years, these old oaks suffered and they, they looked in very bad shape. And in the third year of the drought, they changed the leaf shape to another oak type. It should be a different oak species, of course. To another oak type which is used to very dry rocky uh, stands uh, without water and change its leaf shape and even some branches developed leaf shapes which are of a spanish oak type which is a third different oak species and all on the same trees and then they recovered so they changed to a leaf shape from oaks which are better adapted to a drier climate And the scientists uh, said that it seems that these old oaks remember their Spanish origin. 
in Spain, they survived the Ice Age. And then this population came back by birds and other animals to Germany. And now in this hotter and drier climate, they seem to remember where they came from. Wow, that's an amazing story. That's just wow. Um, <laughs> there were lots of other wow moments in this book. We won't get to all of them, but there's a section about plants and trees having an immune system. You tell us about a term called dendrovirology, yeah. saying that trees can come across viruses and get sick after being attacked by them, perhaps through transmission from insects. And I was looking through your Instagram and trying to get a visual picture of some of what Germany looks like when we're thinking about these issues. And one of the striking images I saw was of a spruce tree, so one of those introduced trees, that has dropped all this sticky resin down its trunk, down the bark, to try and defend against these bark beetles, which you tell us about in the book. And it was a very, very striking image, very, very interesting strategy that it's deployed. And it just kind of made me wonder about these other types of defences that trees deploy. In our past conversation, we talked about them releasing chemicals into the leaves and toxins to stop animals from eating their leaves and obviously here the sticky resin. Are there other things that you've noticed in your time managing the forest around you of these really interesting strategies that trees have deployed that we might not have mentioned? Yeah, it's not my own research, but it's in Germany. Uh, for example, that trees are able to call animals for help. <laughs> that sounds also a little bit crazy, but uh, yeah, that's very hard proven. It's uh, from the University of Leipzig. And they found out that oak trees, for example, they can call birds for help when they are infested by caterpillars eating their, their leaves. So they release a chemical signal for help. And then the birds know, ah, on this oak, there are a lot of caterpillars. That's food. So it's a, an advantage for the birds. And they, then they come fly to this oak and pick all those, those caterpillars and, of course, kill them. And so the tree gets rid of them. So uh, that's one thing uh, which was discovered. The other thing is, for example, on elm trees, that they are able to call little wasps which lay their eggs in caterpillars and eat them from the inner side. That's not a very lovely dead for, for <laughs> those caterpillars, but the, the trees get rid of those caterpillars. So uh, that means that there's a lot of interaction in the forest. And it's not just the trees which needs to help themselves among each others, but also ask for the help of animals. So it's a, from the, the whole system which is reacting. But uh, when it comes to spruce, spruce is a... Uh, a tree species uh, used to cold uh, weather, uh, very, very long winters, uh, very uh, humid climate. And when they grow here in Germany, they are far away from what, what they feel comfortable. So that means with all the strategies, they are not able to deal with those bark beetle infestations. So um, I think in Germany we will lose because we have more than 50% forest coverage consisting of those plantations, we will lose around about 50% of the forest coverage within the next 10 years. Gosh, that's terrible. You get to a certain part of your book where we focus on carbon and soil in particular and climate change and the role of older primeval trees in storing carbon and its role in climate change. And you bring in some of the flawed science and the flawed logic and reasoning of the forestry industry in Germany and how they try and argue that actually plantation forests are better at combating climate change, which sounds nuts to me. 
I'd really love to hear from you about what you describe as the biggest power, I guess, and contribution that these old trees can give us. They're doing it because they need carbon dioxide, but we need carbon dioxide to be taken from the air for obvious reasons. So could you tell us about its role in carbon? Yeah. Old trees are regarded by forestry as weak trees, which may be okay from their point of view because sometimes get in the inner side a little fungi uh, infestation so, so that the tree is a little bit decaying and that is very, very bad for timber use, of course, but for the atmosphere, for the climate, for the carbon storage, the oldest trees are the best ones. And it's long been disregarded that the most carbon is stored under big trees. Scientists, for example, they were just able to make soil proof near the trees. And there, there's not that much carbon than under the trees. But of course, it's harder to research under the trees because <laughs> the tree is still standing. So it was long, long disregarded that old trees are most important. And nowadays, we know that the 1% of the oldest trees in the forest contains 50% of the stored carbon. So it's all about old trees. And as I said, they have more strategies than young trees. They are very, very important for creating this described cold and humid climate to influence the local atmosphere. But if you just look at the carbon storage, then the oldest trees are the best ones. Because if you use timber products, for example, of the forest industry or timber industry says, yeah, but then you store your carbon in your house or in furniture. But even long-lasting timber products they, in average, when you calculate all together, houses, books, furniture, whatsoever, then you have around about 30 years. And then afterwards, it's waste and will be burned in a power plant. And in a forest, trees can, and that's all over the world. In Australia, for example, you have very lovely, very old trees. They can store carbon much, much longer and the best thing is, the older the tree gets, the more carbon it stores. It's increasing from year to year, and that's logical because the tree gets taller and the year rings are getting wider in diameter. So that means from year to year, it's increasing the storing of carbon. So it's all about old trees, and we should have much more of them. Couldn't agree more. It's something that we've talked about on this show so much, and we really care about. I know that you have also been doing a lot of conservation work yourself and you give an example of the Forest Academy leasing some land from forest owners and I was really interested in some of the strategies that you've been trying to deploy, some of the projects that you've had. Of course, you've been pushing up against a lot of vested interests and big money and also very fixed thinking in this area. But could you tell us about some of the things that give you hope, some of the projects that you're seeing some change in? Yeah. First, just to say, I'm not against timber use. I think timber uh, wooden things are wonderful, but the, it's of course a question of how much we use and the way we do it. And we need much more protected forest. And it's it's all about us because we don't like it too hot and too dry too. But uh, yeah, how can we do it? One of our projects is we rent forests from private forest owners or from communities and pay them for the timber, which remains in the forest. And therefore, the forests are better protected than uh, national parks, for example, in Germany, where we still see uh, logging. 
which is also a little bit crazy. But so uh, it's a private initiative to save the oldest German deciduous forest on one hand. On the other hand, it's about every single tree. You described those three silver beech, uh, was it right? In your silver birch, birch, yeah. uh, birch. In your garden, it's about every single tree. For example, I encourage everyone Try it and sit in, on a hot summer day under an umbrella in the shadow and then in the shadow of an old tree. And then you will feel it on your skin that the temperature is around about one or two degrees lower. So that's about the sweat of a tree, the, the evaporation of, of water, the cooling effect. You can feel it yourself. So every single tree counts. And that means that if you have the possibility to plant one tree, it's okay. When you have two or three, it's even better and so on. So even little forests in cities are very, very important and we need more and more of them. So if you don't want to suffer that, that heavily from climate change, we need the help of forests. And I think more and more people are understanding that it's mainly about this. It's the main impact which can uh, create the fastest possibility to have a change. Of course, we need to reduce the burning of coal, oil and gas. But in the same time, we need to restore and let recover the forest ecosystems. Yeah, yeah. And you did write in the book that there was in 2020, I think, a temporary moratorium on logging in ancient primeval beech forests. Yeah. What's the update to that now? What's happening in Germany? So far, there happens more or less nothing. It's a declaration by the German government. They want to do this. And today, um, in the afternoon, I have a conversation with the German Minister of Environment. I will ask her <laughs> what, what, about, what about this moratorium, which yeah. was a good idea, but I have heard nothing of it. And what I see all around me is when foresters here, ah, there may be a moratorium, then they speed up logging, of course, uh, to rescue the timber from being uh, in, into a, a nature conservation area. So in Germany, we don't have good efforts. Uh, we see the biggest clear cuts ever. Now in the moment, it's like the whole industry has become crazy to rescue the last timber for the market before it goes to nature. So I hope that we will see this system change. And that's a reason why we have initiated a new course of study at university. It's called social ecology forest management. And that means first the forest, it has to be become resilient. And then we can look how much timber we may harvest. Oh, I'm so heartened that you're having these conversations. I'm sure she'll have an interesting answer for you. I look forward to hearing what that is. And just finally, one of the things that you got people really excited about was when we were talking about urban trees and you said that trees sleep at night and you said it was very early research that had just come out in, I think, Finland and Austria. Do we know anything more since then about how trees sleep at night and the importance of that? No, I'm sorry, uh, because uh, in this field, there is just a little money for research because there is no direct purpose for like in agriculture when you when you make research on plants on chemicals and whatsoever so in this field there's just a little money on research and i would appreciate that we become more because we see that trees will play a main part will be a main solution in terms of climate change and it's not the only, of course, but, but a very, play a major role in fighting climate change. 
And so we need much more research being done, but it's it's just very slowly uh, approaching. So sorry, in this this field, there's no no new research. Oh, well, I had to ask. I had to ask. <laughs> well, as you say in the book, trees just want and forests just need time and to be left alone. And one of the closing parts of your book is you quote from your own film, The Hidden Life of Trees, saying that the forest will return. It would just be nice if we were still around. I hope we are still around to see that. I hope we yeah. stop touching the forest and actually let it do its thing. And I'm very, very grateful to you, Peter, for opening up our minds and imaginations and our empathy towards nature and especially trees and forests. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you very much, Amy. Thank you. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.